Amen. Hey, if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning to Zechariah chapter 5, we want to continue our series of sermons uh, this fall through the book of Zechariah. If uh, you are new this morning and haven't been here, uh, the title of this series of sermons is called The Glory in Small Things. The Glory in Small Things. And I believe that is a a phrase that captures what God would want us to know from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And what God has been teaching us is about obedience in the midst of small things and that how he brings glory out of that. And I've asked you to think about in your own life, what what is it that God wants to do in your life? What is your purpose? Uh, And that could relate... Oh, I think for most of it, it relates to family because we are either, uh, well, most of us, not all of us, but our parents or we're grandparents or great-grandparents and, and God has a role for us. Uh, it could relate to your vocation, where you work, or maybe as a student, your place in uh, the uh, school, your, those that you go to school with, your extra, extracurricular activities. It, Uh, It it could relate uh, to your church life and a ministry that you're in and it's it's God's purpose uh, for your life right now and it may be a a particular season but um, in Zachariah's day if you're new I just want to kind of catch you up a little bit in Zachariah's day they had come out of exile from Babylon the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and but God engineers the circumstances after 70 years to go back and God said the one thing I want you to do is to rebuild the temple and uh, They were quite energetic about that initially, but then life happened and for 14 years they had Not been doing what God the one thing that God had told him to do and so God sends the prophet Haggai and Zechariah to stir the people to do that which God had called them to do and so um, I've asked you to think about your own life because that's, that's a message that God not only speaks to Zechariah 2,500 years ago, but is recorded in his scripture. It's one of the 66 books. And so obviously God wanted us to hear this message so that we could apply it to our own day to say, God, what is it that you want to do in my life? And am I being obedient to that? And, and then I, for me as a pastor, it is, this, it, is this, this, it is this big idea, this promise that says if we will do the things, whatever it is, whether the world seems like it's, it's insignificant or small, if we will do that which God has called us to do, that God projects that out in the future and even amplifies it for his glory. And God can do amazing things when we simply do what God has called us to do. Um, Zechariah's book starts with eight visions. And this morning in chapter 5 of Zechariah, we're in visions 6 and 7. So we're going to look at all of chapter 5, which is, it's only 11 verses, but there are two visions. Uh, you, might, you might think, well, this is a little bit strange. Uh, I want you to understand that Zechariah didn't say, well, there's a message that I want to speak to the people, and so I'm going to put this in these visions. Zechariah did not come up with these visions. The visions are God-given. 
God said, here's some things I want you to see because there's a message in each one of those visions. And so if you and I think they're strange, understand that God thought they were very significant. And in their day, and I believe there's a, there's a message for us today to say, what is it that God wants to speak to us? Um, in the sixth and seventh visions, the heart of the message is that God speaks about sin. He talks about sin. And I want to read those, those 11 verses, and then I want us to look at these two visions, and then I want us to see what it is that God uh, would say to us today. So in Zechariah 5, it says, Then I turned and raised my eyes, and I saw there a flying scroll. Vision number six is going to be a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. Verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now. And see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lid cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Uh, the book of Zechariah is apocalyptic literature. Uh, the visions are uh, very word of, are visual. God said, I want to see you a picture. When, when God speaks through Zechariah, he said, I don't want to just give you the words. I want to give you a, a picture of what it's like. And so that's in line with apocalyptic literature. Uh, apocalyptic literature, all uh, apocalyptic visions always not only have a vision that are visual, but they are symbolic. Everything, the details to the vision are a part of the message that God is wanting to send. And they're apocalyptic because they reveal what is hidden. God said, I want to I give you a glimpse into the reality as I see it, but I have to pull back uh, the curtains in eternity and your human eyes cannot comprehend what it is that I see and what I know. And so I'm going to give it to you in an earthly vision so you can see it in the best terms that you can. Uh, 
Now, today we have a flying scroll and we have a flying basket. We better start with the flying scroll first. Uh, and so that's in verses 1 through 4. Uh, he has the vision of the flying scroll. Obviously, a scroll is an ancient book. They didn't have books with pages like ours, but they had, um, they had long strips of uh, papyrus or whatever they were making it out of, and they had uh, basically rollers. They had thick pieces of wood on the end that might have been quite ornate. Uh, the other thing I think about ancient uh, books is you realize that everything was handwritten. So there weren't many books. There weren't many scrolls. But when, they, when he sees the scroll, obviously this is, this is an ancient book. For the Hebrews to see a scroll, their mind would have immediately gone to not just any book, but it would have gone to the scriptures. So, so books are relatively rare because they have to be handwritten and only certain people can write. And so when they see, when the vision shows us a scroll, it is, it is a visual that immediately takes their minds to God's Word because they would have encountered God's Word in the synagogue wherever they were, uh, in the temple before these generations, and the priest would have brought out those scrolls and unrolled them. This scroll, though, is very large. It says it is uh, 30, I'm sorry, it is 20 cubits by 10 cubits. A cubit is the dimension, is eight, basically 18 inches, uh, according to the Hebrew reckoning, is from a man's elbow to the tip of his finger, but it obviously men's hands are a little bit different, but about 18 inches. And so this scroll is very large. It is 30 foot by 20 foot. Okay, it's very large. In fact, today, you, you ask, why in the vision is it very large? Because it is God-sized, okay? <laughs> this is not any scroll. No, this is, this is a God-sized scroll. The other thing is we know that it comes from God is because it is flying. Now, I know we have airplanes and we have helicopters and we have all kinds of things maybe that fly in our, in our skies. But in ancient times, in Zechariah's day, what flew in the skies? Birds, Yeah, God's creation. So there's nothing else flying up there. But this is described as flying. Who in the world would have the power to make a scroll fly? Well, it'd only be God. So not only is the scroll God's size, but it is also God's scent. It is something supernatural according to the symbolism of the apocalyptic vision that is, has come from God. It is unrolled. Now, we know this later because there is a message that is written on this. Oh, I meant to tell you this at flying. No, no, no. This is it. I'm thinking, what in the world? A flying scroll. You know, I go back to visions, Brother Cody. I'm sitting at Kyle Field watching a football game, and a plane flies over, and it's got this banner behind it, and it says, eat at Pete's. You're going, hmm, wonder what Pete's is. Honey, maybe we ought to go eat at Pete's. Yeah, so I don't, know, I don't know where else we've seen these things. Y'all have seen these maybe on television or experienced this, but these, these fly, aerial banners that a plane is pulling. And I think the best equivalent for us today of the flying scroll in Zechariah 5 would be that, that banner behind that plane that's flying over the football field that says, 
eat it Pete's it didn't really say eat it Pete's it said it, eat it raising canes or something like that I don't remember what it was there's not a Pete's in College Station that I know of um, but it had a message on it it wasn't just a scroll that was rolled up it was unrolled and the message was clearly displayed um, in fact he says what it says and there, there are two commandments. It's, it's on both sides of the scroll. So sometimes scrolls were just writing on the, written on the inside, but this scroll was written on the outside and on the inside. And so Zechariah said when he saw it, he said on one side it said, every thief shall be expelled, and the other side, every perjurer shall be expelled. Um, now you say, why are these? And so this is identifying sin of, of theft, and, and lying. Those are, those are pretty basic, aren't they? Uh, and I guess in the symbolic nature of the vision, these are two representative sins. But to me, to see that is a statement that says God's standards are very clear. Not many people argue or are unclear about lying and stealing. It's like, oh, no, no, we, we get that. So, you know, as big as Texas, here comes the big flying scroll, and it talks about one sin, uh, stealing, and another sin, lying. Big as Dallas, God's standards are well known. There's no question about this. God's standards are very clear. But there is a key word in the vision. It is, is, the, it is the word curse. And actually, what the flying scroll identifies is the consequences of violating one of God's commandments. And it talks about how the thief shall be expelled, uh, the perjurer shall be expelled. But actually in verse 3, when Zechariah says, what does, what does the flying scroll mean? He says, this, then he said to me, this is the curse that goes over the face of the earth. And then later, in verse 4, he says, I will send out the curse. Now, the word cursed is a loaded word. Maybe a loaded word for us, but for the Jewish people, it was a loaded, loaded word. Because in their national memory, when the word cursed was used, their minds would have flashed back to the book of Deuteronomy. Now the book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Moses at the end of his life, he's on the other side of the Jordan. Moses isn't going into the promised land. And before he turns over the reins to Joshua and sends him across the Jordan River to go into the promised land. Moses said, I'm going to go over all of God's law one more time. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. But there's something that he does. There's a, there's a national event that he creates that would have been sealed in their national memory. They would have never forgot. And Moses said, this is what you're going to do. He said, when you get into the promised land, and in the very center of the, center of the country. He said, I want six of the tribes together on Mount Gerizim. I know y'all don't know where these places are. Maybe the preacher doesn't even. Mount Gerizim. 
And then there's a valley. And he said, I want six of the tribes together on Mount Ebal on the other side. And he said, I want the priest to go over the law one more time. But the way he went over the law is he wanted to go through what would happen if they did not obey the law. Now let me call a timeout to set this up. Because what we've talked about is a covenant relationship between God and his people. And a part of the, the covenant was what God was going to do. And what was God going to do? What did he tell Abraham? He said, I'm going to give you many people. I'm going to give you a land. And the third part of that, he said, I will bless you. Bless you. What did that mean? God said, my hand of blessing is, and protection is gonna, and provision is going to be on your life. You are mine. And not only will it give you many people and give you a land, but my hand is going to be on your life. There is going to be a blessing. And God details the law. It is implied in the law, and Moses even talks about it in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, that if you obey the words of the law, God's hand of blessing will be upon your life. But God said, when you gather on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, half and half, he said, I want you to understand that if you are disobedient to the law of God, God's hand will be removed and it will bring about a curse on your life. And Moses gives them a script that day of, that they were together on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And it was about blessings and cursings. God blesses the person who da-da-da-da-da-da-da obeys the law and he goes through all these laws. But God said on the other side, if you do not obey the law, then here are the curses that God will bring upon you if you are disobedient to all these things. And I think God set them on those two mountains so that they would understand there's two sides of this covenant. There's a blessing for obedience and there is a curse for disobedience. And when the angel says to Zechariah, this is about the curse, in their national memory, they go back to those words in Deuteronomy and that national experience they had at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they understood what God was saying to them in the banner that was flying over. Yes, God's law brings blessing, but if you disobey it, it brings a curse. What was he saying to the people of Zechariah's day? He was saying if you're not obedient to the standards that God has clearly set forth, just know there are consequences. What was the implication? Here's the implication. This is very significant for us today. Children of Israel are building the temple. God was saying that his work, rebuilding the temple, must be accompanied with God's way of life. Get this. God's work must be accompanied by God's way of life. 
This is very important for us today as we have a purpose that God has given us in our families, in our, in our vocations, in our church. Get it? You cannot do God's work but not be living in God's way and expect his hand of blessing to be upon that. Do you get it? The people in Zechariah's day, oh, you can build the temple. But the temple was designed to be a place where you encountered the word of God and you knew a holy God and you knew his standards. If you don't live in those standards and you think God is going to bless what he's called you to do, it doesn't work like that. And so the flying banner was a statement that God was making about sin in God's people. Is that, he, yes, we are called to be obedient to his work, but you also be, must be obedient to his ways. And I want to ask us today, it, it's the same is true for us. What is it that God has clearly made known to you? What was on the flying scroll was about lying and stealing. It's like, okay, yeah, I get that. There's, that's not really a gray area. So what, what I would ask us today is that what is it in our life that is not lining up clearly with God's standards? I'm not talking about what's unclear, what may be gray area, whatever we may debate in, the, in our nation. No, what is it that we know God has clearly revealed about his character and his ways. And if there are those things that are not right with what is the clear standard of God, then we cannot expect God to bless the work, the purpose that God has given us. God's work must be accompanied by God's ways. Sin comes with consequences. And if we don't live according to God's standards, we cannot expect His hand of blessing on the work that He has called us to do. Hmm. Zechariah 5, 1 through 4 the flying scroll. But in verses 5 through 11, there's something else flying. <laughs> it is a basket. Um, now, it doesn't initially say that it's flying, but it says that it's going forth. So in verse 5, it says, what do you see? What is it that is going forth? He said it is a basket that is going forth in verse 6. Um... Brother Ted, I almost came by your house yesterday and asked you for this. This basket uh, would be equivalent to our bushel basket. If you're old enough, um, farmers used to sell produce according to a bushel. Some of y'all are shaking your heads. Yes, okay, I get, I, get a bu I get a bushel, bushel of peas, bushel of corn, whatever it is. It was a, so this is a basket, but technically the Hebrew word there is the word ephah. And it was a basket that was used for measuring. It was used for commercial purposes. It was a, not just a container, but it was a measuring container. And so what, what does this conjure up? Uh, it conjures up uh, 
this basket that would have been used for business. So, so why is it an ephah? Why is it a bushel basket? And this would have been a basket that in their times would have contained, say, five to ten gallons of, of dry produce, whatever that was. But it would have been connected not only to commerce, but I think for the Hebrews of their day, they would have thought of Babylon, which was known for its commerce. I got to thinking that maybe even so they would have thought back to those times that they'd come from Babylon and in those markets where they had all the merchants, the farmers, those who made produce had come with their bushel baskets and they bought those uh, produce from them according to that uh, ephah, that basket. But it's possible even the Hebrew people had, had when they had come, when they were traveling from Babylon out of exile to go back to the promised land, they would have stored, they would have carried uh, their personal effects in these baskets. And they would have brought them back to uh, the Holy Land uh, to be back where God had called them to be. Now, okay, so keep that in mind that there is a basket, there is an ephah that is equivalent to a bushel basket, but it also says that there is a lead disc on top. Now, a lead disc would be very heavy and would only be put on a bushel basket uh, to create weight to keep whatever was in it packed down. And here's where the vision turns. There is something inside the bushel basket that is trying to get out. And the angel said, this is wickedness. Now the Hebrew word, well, it, there's a woman in the basket, but he says symbolically, this is wickedness. And the Hebrew word for wickedness is a, a feminine word but, word, but inside the basket was the personification of wickedness portrayed as a woman that is trying to get out of the basket. And so you get this dual symbolic message that combines not only a materialistic system because the, the basket is used for commercial purposes, but there seems to be because there is a woman which would have been connected to the idolatrous, pagan, uh, religious practice of Babylon. You, you, get, this, you get this symbol of the personification of wickedness, a woman inside this bushel basket, and there's this lid, and, the, and God's, the angel is keeping it pressed down because it, he doesn't want it to get out, and then later in the story it's going to be carried away that the basket speaks of a materialistic system of commerce and the woman inside of it speaks to the pagan, idolatrous, religious practice. And all of this goes back to Babylon. And is combined to speak of a secular, worldly system or approach to life. I know that's a lot. You're going to have to trust me on that one. 
The basket with wickedness inside symbolizes a materialistic approach to life plus a pagan, idolatrous, religious system which combined the materialism and the religion combines collectively to speak of a worldly system. Now here's how the story unfolds. God sends two other beings that have wings like storks, which apparently have long wings. And the basket with the lid on top is carried back where? To Babylon, where there is a house, or we could even say a temple being built to house it. Do you know why? Because that basket with wickedness has no place in God's place. You got to get this. God is saying to the, through Zechariah in this vision that when you came from Babylon, you brought a worldly system that included, included their materialism and their idolatry, and you brought it to this place. And God says, as you're building my house, I want you to know that has no place in my place. That kind of sin has no place here. And God says, I am going to take that and I'm going to remove it and I'm going to take it back to Babylon from where it came and there will be a house there. Oh, I've got to call one other time out. I think I have one more left. Um, you know, I've told you that the prophecy projects out into the future and that's, I've taken that as a positive side. The interesting thing, well, I'm sorry, I didn't, explain this to you but in verse 11 when he says to build a house for it in the land of Shinar Shinar is an ancient uh, term for Babylon it's the original Babylon um, when you project this out into the future you know where you end up <laughs> Babylon becomes the symbol of a worldly system Get this, in end time prophecy, it is so amplified in the future, we come to Revelation 17 and 18, and all of a sudden, there is a harlot who symbolizes a worldly secular system that will exist in the end times, and she is Babylon. And in Revelation 17 and 18, God comes and defeats that. The interesting thing about uh, Revelation 18, it speaks so much of the materialistic commercial side of Babylon. And so when you project this symbol of wickedness and the basket and the woman to the future, it's going to be taken to the nth degree in a one world uh, pagan, idolatrous, worldly system at the end of time. But for today's sake, that worldly system, which includes the materialism and the religious, the pagan religious system, is taken back to Babylon. 
because it has no place in God's place. You're building my temple, and some of you who have brought this has no place. So there are two pictures that talk about sin. One is about things that we do. Do not lie, do not steal, otherwise it comes with consequences. And that, that's, that's, verse, that's vision six. But vision seven takes it a little bit deeper. Because our sin does not just exist in the things that we do or do not do. Our sin exists in the things that we think and we, be, we think in our minds and we believe in our hearts. It is the thought processes. And what is communicated in this vision is some of you who are God's people brought this basket with wickedness in it to this new place. And it has no place here because you brought the materialism. The reason we know that is because they were quite enthusiastic about building the temple, but then life happens and they got concerned about making money and they got to making money and they never got back to building God's temple again because they were involved in a materialistic approach to life. But it also implies that you brought some of the, the, the pagan thought processes, beliefs from Babylon. Some of them were raised in Babylon. You have brought that back to this place. It has no place here. So you see our sin in vision six and seven is described not only as the things that we do or do not do, but it is, the, it is the ways that we think and what we believe that can be counter to God. I, I thought it's kind of interesting that I thought of the story of the rich young ruler that Jesus comes to and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through these commandments to him. Yeah, I've done all those. Jesus does exactly what's done in vision six and seven. Oh, You've done all those things. Then what I need you to do is give up your God that's in your heart because you love your money more than you love God. So I want you to go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll be rich in the kingdom of God. And the young man went away sad because he had much wealth. And I think that parallels uh, what I see in vision six and seven. I am struck by vision seven because it reminds us of this powerful truth that the things of the old life don't belong in the new life. It's the reason I read from 2 Corinthians 5.17 at the start of our service. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The things of the old life don't belong in the new life. You can't take your life, the materialism, and the pagan religion of Babylon and come back, here's the point, and expect to do the work of God when you, what you think and what you believe is counter to what God says is true. Sin is, the yes, the things that we do or don't do, but also sin is what we think and how we believe. And you can bring those things from the old life to the new life, but it doesn't work. And we cannot expect the hand of blessing on our lives until God changes our way of life, which includes what we do, what we don't do, and how we think 
and what we believe in our hearts. And that becomes the complete transformation in our life. And so as we do the things, the purposes of God in our life, whether our family, in our jobs, at our schools, in our church, not only it's not only about doing those things, but it's about living in God's way. And God's way includes what we do or don't do but also includes the things that we think in our minds and we believe in our heart. And for God's hand of blessing to be on our life, we must deal with what has been made very clear in God's standards of holiness. If there is anything I'm not talking about gray areas. I'm talking about what we know is right and wrong and according to the standards of God. If there is anything, do not expect God to bless what he has called you to do. If there is blatant disobedience to those things. But also understand that even deeper than that, it's what we think and what we believe. And if those thought processes, that philosophy of life comes, we cannot expect the blessing of God and His purposes in our lives until He transforms us on the inside. It's not just the basket. It's what's inside the basket that God wants to deal with. Let me pray today. Father, uh, I thank You for Your Word. And Father, we... um, We are confronted with your holiness today. Father, I thank you that you love us, that your son died for us, that ultimately you are the one who, Father, takes away our sin. And so, Father, today I pray in our own way, in our own situations, our own place in life, uh, that, Father, we we would confess, we would agree with you on our sin. And that, Father, you would take that and you would not only forgive us, but you would redeem us and you would change us, Father. And so, Father, we um, pray that you would continue to do your work and that you would be glorified in our lives. And, Father, I pray it in Jesus' name.